I, I like to make sure everybody knows that they ought to have a copy of the Bible in front of them as I read and as I preach, or anybody else who stands here and, and reads and preaches, because you need to make sure that what's being said from this pulpit is what's in that book and nothing else. And so that's why you carry your Bibles to church. And if you don't have one in your hand, there's one in the pew in front of you or the seat in front of you, you can follow along there. But uh, keep the preacher honest. We'll be in Esther chapter 9. We'll start reading in verse number 1, and we're going to read to the end of the book. There's only three verses in chapter 10, so we'll just finish it out, and uh, then we'll look this morning at this topic. The opposite occurred. Esther chapter 9, verse 1. Now in the twelfth month, that is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day, the time came for the king's command and his decree to be executed. On the day that the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, the opposite occurred in that the Jews themselves overpowered those who hated them. The Jews gathered together in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could withstand them, because fear of them fell upon all the people. And all the officials of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and all those doing the king's work helped the Jews, because the fear of Mordecai fell upon them. For Mordecai was great in the king's palace, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For this man, Mordecai, became increasingly prominent. Thus, the Jews defeated all their enemies with a stroke of the sword, with slaughter and destruction, and did what they pleased with those who hated them. And in Shushan the citadel, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. Also, Parshandatha, Dalphon, Aspatha, Poratha, Adalia, Eridatha, Parmashta, Erasai, Eridai, and Vajazatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, they killed. But they did not lay a hand on the plunder. On that day, the number of those who were killed in Shushan, the citadel, was brought to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, The Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men in Shushan the citadel and the ten sons of Haman. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your petition? It shall be granted to you. Or what is your further request? It shall be done. Then Esther said, if it pleases the king, let it be granted to the Jews who are in Shushan to do again tomorrow, according to today's decree. And let Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. The decree was issued in Shushan, and they hanged Haman's ten sons. And the Jews who were in Shushan gathered together again on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar and killed three hundred men at Shushan, but they did not lay a hand on the plunder. The remainder of the Jews in the king's provinces gathered together and protected their lives, had rest from their enemies, and killed seventy-five thousand of their enemies. But they did not lay a hand on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th of the month they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were at Shushan assembled together on the 13th day as well as on the 14th, and on the 15th of the month they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore the Jews of the villages who dwelt in the unwalled towns celebrated the 14th day of the month of Adar with gladness and feasting as a holiday and for sending presents to one another. And Mordecai wrote these things and sent letters to all the Jews near and far who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to establish among them that they should celebrate yearly the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar as the days on which the Jews had rest from their enemies, as the month which was turned from sorrow to joy for them and from mourning to a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and joy, of sending presents to one another and gifts to the poor. 
So the Jews accepted the custom which they had begun, as Mordecai had written to them, because Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to annihilate them, and had cast pur, that is the lot, to consume them and destroy them. But when Esther came before the king, he commanded by letter that this wicked plot which Haman had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. So they called these days Purim, after the name Pur. Therefore, because of all the words of this letter, what they had seen concerning this matter, and what happened to them, the Jews established and imposed it upon themselves and their descendants and all who would join them, that without fail they should celebrate these two days every year, according to the written instructions and according to the prescribed time, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, every family, every province, and every city, that these days of Purim should not fail to be observed among the Jews, and that the memory of them should not perish among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm this second letter about Purim. And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, with words of peace and truth, to confirm these days of Purim at their appointed time, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had prescribed for them, and as they had decreed for themselves and their descendants concerning matters of their fasting and lamenting. So the decree of Esther confirmed these matters of Purim, and it was written in the book. And King Ahasuerus imposed tribute on the land and on the islands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and his might, and the account of the greatness of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written? in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Media and Persia. For Mordecai the Jew was second to King Ahasuerus and was great among the Jews and well received by the multitude of his brethren, seeking the good of his people and speaking peace to all his countrymen. Father God, we thank you for your word. This is the word of God, and we just pray that you would uh, now speak to us through it. Fill me, Lord, with your spirit. Help me, Father, today to say what I ought to, every bit of it and absolutely nothing else. And uh, I just pray today, Lord, this would be clear and accurate and practical, that you would speak to our hearts about this wonderful truth. And as we sum up some thoughts about this wonderful book, I pray, Lord, that it has been useful and will continue to be as we think through these things and apply them to our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Notice verse number one, on the day that the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, the opposite occurred. As we come to the conclusion of the book of Esther, it seems to me this verse sums it all up. Uh, We've talked before, and probably uh, many of your study Bibles say that Esther chapter 4 and verse number 14 is the key verse of the chapter. Uh, And maybe it is, or of, of the book, I mean, and maybe it is. But I'm beginning to lean more toward this verse because it more fully describes here what God did for his people uh, in these ten short chapters. Just when things looked like they were going one way, a bad way. God turned it around, and the opposite occurred, sent things in the opposite direction. Where once God's enemies rejoiced, they now mourned. Where once God's people feared, they now celebrated. For the sake of those who maybe haven't been here for this entire study, let's let's just review a little bit what has taken place in these previous chapters. In chapter 1, we were introduced to Ahasuerus, the king, and his queen Vashti. You'll remember that the queen, in an absolutely drunken stupor, asked his queen to display herself to all of his uh, henchmen who were around him. She refused. 
and he deposed her from being queen. And then in chapter 2, we saw why that little detail was so important, because that vacant throne next to Ahasuerus was important. It was a place that needed filling, and God saw to it that a beautiful young Jewish girl named Esther was chosen in Vashti's place. Esther became queen. God had maneuvered a king and and a queen and, and all the other leaders in the kingdom just so that Esther could be moved into a place there where God would later use her. Oh, and at the end of that chapter, something else interesting happened. Mordecai was another major character in the story, and Mordecai uh, saved the life of the king. As just mentioned, as kind of an afterthought there in chapter 2, and nothing was ever done for Mordecai. He was never, uh, never uh, given any kind of a reward for that, kind of forgotten at the time, but later it would become important. And then we met Haman. Haman, the enemy of the Jews, in chapter 3, we learned that he hated this man, Mordecai. He hated Mordecai, and Mordecai was none too fond of him either. Haman was in a position of authority and wealth that was so great that only Ahasuerus, the king, exceeded him. And Haman so hated Mordecai, the Jew, that he convinced that weak king Ahasuerus to uh, issue a decree authorizing the extermination of every Jew. Not just Mordecai, that wasn't enough. Every Jew, everywhere in all of the world. Mordecai knew that Esther's position on the throne gave her a unique opportunity to mitigate that threat, and so he pled with her to please go and talk to the king. And so in chapter 4, that's what we see, him pleading with her to intercede. And we learned that Esther was afraid to do such because it was dangerous to go before the king un, uninvited. Uh, well, there's some people a death sentence, people that died for such. But Mordecai convinced her, and chapter 4 ended with her agreeing to try. And then chapter 5 we see how she went about uh, trying to do this. She invited the king and Haman to a banquet. The king assumed that there was something that Esther wanted, and so he continuously asked her, what is it that you want? What is it you want? I'll give you anything up to half the kingdom. And she responded by saying, I would like you and Haman to come to a, a second banquet. She had invited her to one. He asked her what she wanted. She invited him to a second banquet. And at the end of that first banquet, Haman, full of himself and, and thinking he was the most important person on earth, the only person on earth to have ever been invited to dine with the king and queen alone in their, uh, in their own personal place, left that banquet on cloud nine. But as he left, he saw Mordecai. Mordecai. And his mood turned thumbsucky. He went home to his wife in a foul mood. And she, wives don't ever do this, she suggested to her husband, well, why don't you just have him hanged? Why don't you just kill the guy? And so that's what uh, that chapter ended with the gallows constructed and Haman ready to do away with the enemy. We come to chapters 6 and 7, which I think are the funniest chapters in all of the Bible. If you ever just want to laugh reading the Bible, you just need to read chapters 6 and 7 of Haman because they're just flat hilarious. There's so much irony in them. The chapter 6 opens with Haman running to the king at first light to get permission to hang Mordecai. Unaware of the fact the king has been up all night. He hasn't slept a wink. And he's had people reading to him out of history books. And out of those history books, he learned that Mordecai had saved his life one time some years back. And Mordecai had never been rewarded for this very important thing. And so here comes Haman running in. And he wants to, uh, he, he wants to say to the king, I want Mordecai dead. And the first thing that the king says is, I want Mordecai honored. And I want you to do it. And Haman had to lead him through the city and honor him. And uh, it was not a good day. For Haman. He did that to his dismay. And then he 
with his day already destroyed by those horrible turn of events, he was led to the second banquet. In chapter 7, we see Esther in the second banquet, now screwed up her courage and said to the king, Haman is the one who's trying to kill us all. And the chapter ended with the king hanging Haman on the very gallows he had built for Mordecai. And one might think the matter was concluded at that point. It seemed a great victory. Haman, the enemy of the Jews, was dead. Esther and Mordecai were safely delivered from his treachery. But there just was this one little problem, and we talked about this the last time, and that was that the decree was still in effect. The law was the law, and it couldn't be changed in that particular culture. It was the law of the land. There was no revoking it. That decree that authorized people everywhere to kill Jews everywhere on a certain day in the future remained in force. And so in chapter 8, we saw the king instructing Esther and Mordecai to issue a second decree. And that second decree simply allowed the Jews to fight back if they were attacked. They could defend themselves with the full force of the king and the law and everything behind their actions. And so we come then. Finally, to the final scene in the whole thing, and that is here in chapter 9. That day came. March 13th, 473 B.C. That's what is referred to there in chapter 9 and verse number 1. And there were enemies aplenty who attacked the Jews on that day, taking advantage of the opportunity that Haman's original evil decree had given them. These Jews... The Jews, empowered by the second degree, defended themselves. We see that in verse number 5. And they killed 500 people in Shushan on that first day of fighting. And apparently that wasn't all the enemies of the Jews, because when the king spoke to Esther at the end of that day, and he said, okay, I gave you what you wanted, yeah, uh, everything that you asked for you've gotten, what else would you like? She said, let's do it again tomorrow. She said, let's kill some more tomorrow. She asked for authority to root out the remaining enemies on that second day, which would have been March 14th, 473. All told, 75,000 were killed in the provinces and 500 were killed in Shushan the first day, including Haman's ten sons, and then 300 more were killed in Shushan on the second. And when all was over, Mordecai and Esther wrote letters, sent them to Jews everywhere, instructing them to celebrate this great victory, this great deliverance. And the Feast of Purim, which is still observed annually on March 14th and 15th by Jewish people, was instituted as a time of rejoicing and giving of gifts. I have a brother-in-law who is a Jewish rabbi, and so I wrote him about these things, and he pointed out to me that Esther is his favorite book, that every year in the Feast of Purim he stands and reads the book of Esther. And so the things that things that we're saying and seeing, are still done today. This book is a wonderful story, isn't it? It's just a tremendous story. It's a fantastic account from history. It's a thrilling and captivating story of good versus evil. It's a classic short story with, 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 with O. Henry-like plot twists all throughout it. But it also provides this wealth of thought-provoking truths that we can apply to our lives today. We have noticed in every chapter that there are applications we could make from it. And I want us to conclude our study today by doing the same thing. There's some applications here, even in chapter 9, that apply to us today. So let's notice a few of those, and then we'll be done with our study. First of all, there is a word here about reality. Reality. These Jews, we've talked all throughout this thing about Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and that actual phrase is used 
uh, applied to his name, I think, three times in the chapter. Uh, we've talked about him, but the Jews clearly had more enemies than just Haman because there was no shortage of attackers when the day came. They came out of the woodwork. And that's something we need to think about. We need to pause for a moment and, and contemplate that. Both the first decree authorizing the Jews' destruction and the second decree authorizing the Jews to fight back and defend themselves were distributed throughout the entire kingdom. Chapter 3 and verse 13, chapter 8 and verse 13 both tell us that. So those who chose to attack the Jews when the day came knew that they no longer acted with the king's blessing. But they attacked anyway. And those in Shushan, the king's capital city, not only were aware of the decrees, but they had seen with their own eyes the events that surrounded these decrees. They had seen the advancement of Esther and Mordecai into the top two positions in the kingdom. They they bowed before Mordecai every place he went. They saw this. These same people had no doubt recoiled in horror as they watched Haman and the tremendous transformation that took place in his life in one day when he went from being the king's pet to writhing in death atop a 75-foot pole uh, at the king's word. And yet, and yet, they attacked. Still, they were the enemies of God's people. Warren Wiersbe points out it is remarkable that so many Persians would have dared to attack the Jews right in the king's own city where both Esther and Mordecai lived. And the reality is that there will always be such Until Jesus comes again. There will always be the enemies of God and his people. Some read uh, the account of Esther on that second day, and we mentioned it a moment ago. Some read the account of her uh, asking for more to fight, or the chance to fight more on the second day. They think she's being vindictive or vengeful, and they look at her in in an evil light. But if you really think about this, the the Jews were not allowed to initiate anything. They could only defend themselves. That's what it was about. So if, if she asked for that, can we defend ourselves again tomorrow? She must have known that there was yet others who still were, were enemies. And, and obviously there were. 300 more were killed the next day in Shushan. And throughout the province, it's 75,000. It's simply amazing that more would attempt to kill the Jews uh, on that second day in light of the events of the first day. And perhaps that was the boldness of the enemies of the Jews that prompted her to make that request, I don't know. And perhaps that's why she wanted Haman's ten sons, who were already quite dead, to be impaled upon poles so that all could see and take warning. And by the way, here's an interesting tidbit I, I, I heard in a couple different, or read in a couple different sources. This is Warren Wiersbe. He says, in the text of the Hebrew Scriptures, the ten names are arranged on the page to look like a gallows. On the Feast of Purim, the synagogue reader reads these ten names all in one breath because the sons of Haman all died together. And I tried to read them all in one breath a minute ago. I'm not sure I succeeded. But the fact is being a Jew was a perilous business. It was then. It probably is today. And likewise, there's no doubt that Christianity is a perilous business. There are enemies led by an enemy. The Bible says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, First Peter 5. Our enemies are numerous. They are near and far. They are ruthless. We, we know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one, John said. And they can be counted on to be impervious to logic or the fear of God. 
The enemies in Shushan were unfazed, either by Haman's corpse or those of his ten sons whose shadows fell over the city which they attacked, or any of the other indications that they probably were on the wrong side at this particular point in history. There was no logic to any of it. Just as there is no logic to much of the evil, all of the evil, perpetrated in our world today. Certainly we've all read, listened to, watched news accounts, and just shook our heads. Said, this makes no sense. This is ridiculous. It's, it's, it's completely nuts. Evil is not logical. In these two days of God's enemies fighting against God's people, we are reminded of the absolute absurdity of evil. And the reality is that until Jesus comes, God's people face an enemy who captains a great horde of enemies. But the reality also is that just as God protected his people from Haman and his hordes, so he protects us today. Jesus said, I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Our enemy, the devil, our enemy, the devil, will one day be judged and destroyed just as Haman was. He who seemed so powerful, invincible, untouchable even was judged and destroyed in a moment. And Jesus said, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out because the ruler of this world is judged. Yeah, there's a reality here. A reality that we as God's people are in a battle against God's enemies. And every day we walk this earth, that battle rages. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. But the reality also is that the battle is already won. Say that with me. The battle is already won. Say it again. The battle is already won. Just as God defended his people in Esther's day, he defends you. He defends me just as miraculously and completely today. Well, so there's a word about reality. There's also another uh, application here I see, and that's a word about parenting. And you might think, well, now that's a weird one to draw out of this passage, but I think it's there. There's a word about parenting. I think there's a truth seen here that parents, and, and maybe especially fathers, must not be allowed to forget. And that is that we influence our children we affect our children's future. If we read about Haman's sons again in, in verses 7 through 10, and then in, in verse 13 and in verse 14, every parent and maybe every father ought to underline those passages in their Bible. And you ought to write alongside of those passages parental influence. Parental influence. Because I, I think these ten sons of Haman were at least, in a sense, victims of their father. Where did it come from, this hatred that these ten men had for the Jewish people? Perhaps they took up arms on that first day against the Jews entirely, purely out of vengeance for their father's death. Or perhaps they had been swayed by his words on the subject while he was yet alive. But either way, it's hard to ignore the fact, the reality, that they were in the position they were in because of their father's beliefs and their father's choices. Simply put, had Haman not been and done what Haman was and did, then his sons would not have been hanged 
as he was. Ahab was one of the most wicked kings that that Israel ever had. He was godless in every way. It was Ahab who, stirred up by his even more evil wife Jezebel, uh, killed Naboth just to get his tiny little vineyard. Ahab was an evil man. But one day God judged Ahab and he died. And his son, Ahaziah, took the throne. And here's what the Bible says. Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, became the king over Israel in Samaria in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and reigned two years over Israel. He did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in the way of his mother and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. There's all kinds of examples like that that we could go to. Scripture illustrating this truth that fathers influence their children, mothers influence their children. The daughter of Herodias did what her mother said and therefore was party to the murder of John the Baptist. Parents influence children. And so we see the ten sons of Haman dead atop the gallows, and we cannot help but be reminded that they were there to a large extent because of the influence of their father. But I'll leave that there, and I'll move on to the next one. The next one is equally brief and equally perhaps, it might seem a strange one as well, but I think there's also a word here about priorities. And I have to mention this one because the Scripture mentions it three times, and if, if something is mentioned more than once in Scripture, we need to stop and say, why is God... Pointing that out, why is he emphasizing that? What does the account mean? Why does the account say repeatedly that they did not lay a hand on the plunder? It's it's said three times in verse 10, verse 15, and verse 16. They did not lay a hand on the plunder. They had been authorized to do so. If you go back and look at the original decree in chapter 8 and verse number 11, they were authorized to plunder as well as to defend themselves. So why this repeated emphasis that the provision of the decree was ignored? And the Scripture doesn't answer it. I I have to just, you know, theorize a little bit here, but I, I I think it's this. I think for these Jews, on this day, there were bigger issues than money. I think for these Jews on this day, they were fighting for their lives and their continuation as a people, and the plunder didn't matter one little bit. There are things that are more important than money. Jesus taught that, didn't he? He said to them, take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. And he spoke a parable to them, saying, the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully, and he thought within himself, saying, what shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I'll do this, I'll pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store all my crops and my goods, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years, take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry, but God said to him, fool. This night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. might be a minor application from the text, but I think it's there, and I think we have to think about it because it's repeated three times. So I feel compelled to ask, where is your treasure, Christian? So there's a word here about reality, there's a word here about parenting, there's a word here about priorities, and finally, I think this is the main application, there's a word here about God. The book of Esther is about God. It's not about Esther. It's not about Mordecai or Hashuerus or Vashti or Haman or anybody else. It's about God. And there's a word here that reminds us of that, a word. I think the main lesson, perhaps, of the entire book of Esther. And we've already mentioned it to a certain degree, and it's this. God can and does do the opposite. 
the opposite. Verse number one, on the day that the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, the opposite occurred. The Feast of Purim was established as a reminder of that very truth. Mordecai wrote these things, sent letters to all the Jews near and far who were in the provinces to establish among them that they should celebrate yearly the 14th and 15th days as the days on which the Jews had rest from their enemies as the month which was turned from sorrow to joy for them and from mourning to a holiday that they should make them days of feasting and joy. They were to celebrate and they continue to celebrate to this day because God did the opposite. Our God can and does turn sorrow into joy. He does turn mourning into celebration, brokenness into wholeness, pain into pleasure, death into life. The psalmist reiterated the same truth when he wrote, You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have put off my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness in Psalm chapter 30. God often does the opposite of what we expect, but he is always working all things together for our good. May not feel like it much when we're going through the fire, when the enemy's oppression is palpable about us, when the difficulties of life surround us and press in upon us and threaten to overwhelm us. Sometimes we can't put our finger on what it is that's weighing us down. Sometimes there is no one big thing, just a lot of little things that seem to be piled around us. We feel sometimes like the wall builders in Nehemiah who said the strength of the laborers is failing and there is so much rubbish that we are not able to build the wall. You ever feel like that? It's just the rubbish of life that's built up around us and threatening to take us out of the race. But what we see is not always what God sees. He often sees and does the opposite. Corey Ten Boom wrote, My life is but a weaving between my Lord and me. I cannot choose the colors. He worketh steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper, and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly shall God unroll the canvas and explain the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. He knows, he loves, he cares. Nothing this truth condemns. He gives his very best to those who leave the choice with him. Do you see it, brothers? Do you see it, sisters? Will you believe it today? Our God can and does do the opposite. On the day that the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, the opposite occurred. Haman hated the Jews, tried to kill the Jews, and instead was killed himself. Hitler did the same and came to the same end. Atheism and secularism in our day have preached for centuries that Christianity is foolishness and their more more enlightened view would soon prevail and yet Christianity continues to spread across our world like a wildfire. God does the opposite. Some people live only for today, thinking they are making the right choice. But the opposite will occur when they wake up in hell. Some people live for eternity, suffering loss and difficulty and deprivation in this life. And one day the opposite will occur and they will have it all. Some fight against God and his word and his people, thinking themselves superior. One day they will bow before our king. Find out the opposite has occurred. Most of you know the story of my son Joshua and the cancer that he went through. And I've told the story many times, but it fits here, so I'll repeat it again. 
My wife and I feared the worst on this one particular day. We said our goodbyes to Josh, thinking that we would never see him again until we got to heaven. But God did the opposite. Josh is today riding in a 400-mile bicycle race. Bicycle ride, not race. Healed him. I thought my world was broken and pretty much over when my wife died. Completely lost, wondering what God was doing. I have, I have never felt more hopeless or helpless or questioning what God was doing in there. But God did the opposite and brought Kathy into my life. What Haman are you facing, Christian? What enemy seems so insurmountable that you fear it will crush you? Believe in God. God has it well in hand. Will you not believe in a God who can and does so very often do the opposite? So often, when faced with the troubles in life, We feel like the father in Mark chapter 9. You remember him? He brought his son to Jesus for healing. Jesus Jesus asked him, and when he asked Jesus to to heal his son, his, his plea, his prayer was so imperfect. It was so filled with doubt. He said, have mercy on us and help us if if you can. And Jesus said, what do you mean if I can? What do you mean if I can? Anything is possible for person believes. And the father instantly cried out, I do believe. Please help me overcome my unbelief. Isn't that the way half of us approach the Lord? When the rubbish of life overwhelms, when pain becomes acute, when enemies surround, when truth seems silenced and lies seem to abound, when our greatest desire is to trust God, and yet the weakness of our flesh allows us to doubt. Know this. It is then That God is working. He is working, just as he worked here. And so then here is the conclusion of all of the book of Esther, the summary of the book of Esther. God is working even when he is not seen or acknowledged. God did work even when he was not seen or acknowledged. And he preserved his people, the Jews in this case, just as he has preserved the Jews down through history so that they might be his conduit to bring us the law, to bring us the scriptures to bring us the Savior. And when we stand back and look at Esther, we're given one undeniable message from the book, and that's what it is. God is working, even when he is not seen or acknowledged. And regardless of whether others believe or not, we who do believe can trust our God always. Always, in every way, on every day, God is working, even when he is not seen or acknowledged. And that is the essence of Esther. Father God, thank you so much for the privilege of looking at your word. I pray that you speak to our hearts today. May our faith be strengthened by this wonderful book. Lord, a book where your name is not mentioned one time. A book where there's no evidence that anybody in this thing believed in you. And yet, Father, still, in spite of the weakness of that position, in spite of the, of the fact that people... Gave you no, no, no thought, no word, no mention. You were there on behalf of your people. And Father, I pray today that no matter what we see, 
no matter what we might be going through. And I pray this for myself and for everybody in this room, Lord, no matter what difficulties we might have, no matter what doubts might be in our hearts and lives, we will be encouraged to know that our God is working. He is weaving the tapestry of our life in ways that we might not understand, but yet he is there. And so encourage your people today, Lord. I pray that we'd all remember that there are times when we're looking in one direction, but God's doing just the opposite. And in the end, we will see the glorious wisdom and wonder that was his plan. So speak to us today. And I I pray another thing, Lord. I pray also that if there's anybody here today who doesn't know you as Savior, they'll know that sometimes God does exactly what he says he's going to do. And when he says that he casts the wicked into hell, I pray they'll know that that is true. There's not going to be any opposite there. That's going to be exactly what he said. And, And that when he said, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, I pray they'll know that is true, exactly what is said, that if they'll but call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, they can have all this assurance, assurance of eternal life, assurance of forgiveness, assurance that God is working on their behalf. So, Lord, if there's any like that today, I pray they'd call upon you and be saved this day, either where they sit as we sing, or, Lord, even better if they would come forward and let someone pray with them and explain these things to them more clearly. If people need to make decisions today, help us to do it. If any of us, Father, need to come and kneel at this altar and pray, help us to do it. Uh, we just give this final part of our service to you. Ask that you'd help us now to respond as you would have us to. In Jesus' name, amen.